I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Motormouth podcast with me, Tim Sylvie, and Tom OF1, who's standing in for Harry Benjamin while he's out on commentary duties. This is the place where we meet a figure from the world of motorsport and dive into their lives and careers, often uncovering truths you never knew existed. We've sat down with Formula One drivers, team principals, touring car stars, Le Mans and IndyCar winners, famous broadcasters, content creators and pioneers, all to make sure that you get behind the visor and hear from the world's biggest and most interesting names. If there's anyone with a story to tell, they usually tell it right here. Check us out at motormouth.club, download our app, check out our regular Motormouth kart race where you can race alongside the stars and support our partners at Movember and the Brain Tumor Charity. And don't forget, please subscribe to our show, leave a review, it really makes a difference. Find us on all the major podcast channels. In the meantime, sit back, relax, and enjoy the chat. Hello, Tim Sylvie here, and today we're joined by a man who is influential in bringing Super Aguri to Formula One, creating the team in under 100 days. Before we bring him in, Tom, I want to stretch your F1 brain muscles once again. Now, we mentioned our guest started the Super Aguri team, but can you tell me what year Super Aguri first appeared on the F1 grid? Oh, okay, okay. I, I should have done my research. To, uh, <laughs> okay, um, right. I can picture the car. Yeah, quite clear as day in my head. I'm going to say that chassis. I'm I'm going between 2007 2008. I'm going to say 2007. Oh, seriously, good effort. Seriously, good effort. It's 2006. Um, Bahrain Grand Prix, um, and they finished at the Spanish Grand Prix in 2008. But I, I, to be honest, I'm impressed. That's that's the first question you've got wrong. Fuming. I'm so, I'm so sorry, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> 
talking the disrespect of, talking is real. Of Mark, shall I, uh, shall I bring in today's guest? Yeah, why not? Why so not? today we're joined by Mark Preston, a man with an enviable CV. He's worked with Arrows Grand Prix and then started the aforementioned Super Aguri Formula One team. He's worked at McLaren in Formula One, where he's principal designer before I switched to Formula E, where he's been a team principal and now CEO. He's an automotive advisor to Oxford University and the founder of multiple businesses, including Street Drone, which he serves as chief strategy officer. As if he's not already busy enough, he's taken time out of his day to join us for a chat. We're here to learn about his life, career, thoughts and opinions. Mark, a big warm welcome to the Motormouth Podcast. Just before we get into that, bear with me for two minutes. I must tell you about our new sponsors of the show. And it's one that means a great deal to us all on a very personal level here at the Motormouth Podcast. In 2021, Dana, the founder of Motus One, passed away suddenly and without warning whilst visiting family in the States. Dana was one of my very best friends. The legacy he left with his family and his business is incredible, and I'm hugely humbled and proud to have his booming business as part of this show. Sponsors are vital for our survival, and make sure we continue to bring you interviews with the biggest names in racing. So if you or your company needs event transportation, look no further than the team at Motus One. They have you covered anywhere in the world, from a single chauffeur-driven sedan to a fleet of luxury SUVs, Teslas, or motor coaches, find your transportation solution with Motus One. They've got offices worldwide, including the Middle East, Europe, and Africa, and will support your transportation needs regardless of location. Motus One is committed to world-class service at the very best rates to ensure your event goes off without a hitch. Contact them at motusone.com. We'll put all their social links in the podcast description. A massive, massive thanks to Dana, his wife, Claudia, his kids, the rest of the Motus One team. Thank you for having faith in our show and joining us for season 12. Right, back to it. On with the show. Thanks for having me today. Looking forward to it. Where are you, uh, where are you joining us from today in the world, Mark? Not so glamorous today. I'm in Oxford. Normally, when someone asks that question, I'm traveling to some race somewhere, but I'm just in Oxford today. It's a beautiful city. Beautiful city. Yeah. Love uh, it there. Oxford's a lovely place. But you're originally from Geelong. Is that how you say it? Geelong? Because it's spelled Geelong, yeah, isn't it? Right. But Geelong in Australia, yeah. um, where you were brought up before graduating um, through university with a degree in mechanical engineering. So let's take it right back to the early days before all of that, were there any hints when you were a child of what was to come? Was that was the motorsport gene just in you from an early age? Um, probably not so much motorsports as as fixing mechanical things. We used to live on uh, we used to live on a farm for a while. My grandfather was uh, what they call an auto wrecker, salvage merchant. So we're always around cars and mechanical things. So yeah, fixing trucks and those kind of things on farms is where I really got the, the bug for engineering and, and, and definitely mechanical engineering. Interesting. I, I mean, I think, you know, was, um, you say you living on a farm, is was that kind of right out in the sticks? Because I know kind of Melbourne reasonably well, I know kind of Geelong, that kind of area, but yeah, were you kind of, were you very much kind of out of the way growing up or were you closer to the city? When I was when I was young, my my uncle had a farm in Geelong, actually, so that was closer to the cities, let's say. But then, when we we're um, in primary school, we went out to the middle of Australia uh, to a place called Condobolin, so a big long name of a town there, out near um, out near Bathurst, actually. So in the middle oh, of nice. New South Wales. So that really was in the middle of nowhere, really. Yeah, God. So you graduated. What came next? When when did the move to the UK come along? Well, while I was doing my engineering degree, I went to Monash and it was a bit theoretical. And so I was getting a little bit bored with too much maths and, and those kind of things. And I um, 
found the only manufacturer of motor uh, racing cars in Australia um, called uh, Spectrum, Borland Racing. And I went down and helped them and just said, can I help out? And for the next number of years, I worked in parallel. I was at, um, at GM. So I worked at Holden um, and places like HSV, which is what TWR was, Tom Mopitrol Racing. Um, they owned uh, HSV in Australia. And then um, at one point, I was talking to some journalists and they said, you know, before you turn 27, you could go and um, you can go and get a, a visa in the UK and, and go and work in the UK. So within three months, um, I'd packed up and come to the UK for two weeks oh. or two years. And 25 years later, here I am still doing motorsports <laughs> in the UK. So, um, yeah, it was a bit of a whirlwind coming over to, to the UK. And it was at the time when Tom Walkinshaw had just bought um, Arrows. So a perfect mm-hmm. timing of to go from HSV in Australia to Arrows in, in the UK. So, so when you were at um, HSV, was were they was it V eight supercars um, that they were primarily involved in? Yeah, I was I was actually involved in the road car side of it. So doing yeah, getting okay. the, the fun bit for a young engineer is driving those big V eight five point liter five point eight liter <laughs> know, cars around uh, <laughs> every day. So that was that was always good fun for for petrol heads in those days. Uh, yeah, so I started in in the road car side of things. Yeah, you can uh, you, you can tell you've been in the UK for a while now. That the the Aussie twang is definitely not as noticeable <laughs> as it is in some of my my Australian friends. Um, now you mentioned arrows there. Um, I think it's always fascinating to draw comparisons between what F1 teams were like then and what they are now. I mean, with the factories like the Red Bull campus and um, you know McLaren, which is just a spaceship, it's insane. What what was the what was the team like back then? Arrows. What was the vibe like? What sort of numbers did you have working there and so on? We were about, I think we got to about 220 people. And as you know, you know, some of the F1 teams are up in the thousand uh, type range now, just for the chassis side. That's, uh, you know, before you talk about the engine side uh, as well. Um, Arrows was pretty good at the time because Tom had built it up brand new. So the factory was brand new. So it was one of the, you know, one of the the newest ones. Because when I actually went to McLaren, we were still in the old buildings of McLaren when I first arrived. And then obviously they built the, the big, um, the big new place. Um, so uh, it was pretty, it was pretty modern at the time. We had all the toys and bells and whistles uh, that we could at the time. Uh, so it was, I mean, in those days we still had uh, sort of three race cars. You had test teams, you know. So the test teams would be running in parallel to the race teams. There was quite a lot of testing going on. I think what's happened over the last sort of twenty years or twenty-five years that I've been around uh, F1 in, in this. In this country, a lot more has come, come down to simulation and rigs and rig testing and, and those kind of things, um, as opposed to just more test teams and those kind of things. So um, I used to run the test team at Arrows. That was quite fun. We had the test team, R&D. So when I was head of R&D, it was probably one of my most favorite jobs because I got to do pretty much everything, designing things and also going and testing them. So it was good fun. I guess that's the uh, byproduct of being at a, you know, it's still 220 people, but it's still a relative smaller business compared to a big team that you do get a bit more involved in everything. I mean, back then, testing was completely uncapped, right? Because I know of the story around, like, when Lewis Hamilton got into that McLaren in 2007, he'd done enough testing for an entire Grand Prix season before, I believe. And I think you, you notice that now. So in the Formula E team, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, James Rossiter works with us in, in the Formula E team. And, and I was working with him back in, the, in, the, in Formula One. And, and there's not many drivers, current drivers, that have done that many test miles, as you say. So people like him and Pedro De La Rosa and others have done, you know, 
30, 40, 50,000 kilometers of testing, you don't get to do that anymore. That's a pretty unique right. experience back in those days. So, so you, when you joined McLaren, you were in that old building still, in the old McLaren building, which yeah. is quite a sort of dour building, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's not a lot of windows. It's a lot of bricks. It's nothing like the McLaren that we know now. So you moved there as principal designer. That must have been a pretty cool period for you, even though you weren't in the, the main MTC at that point, working on the um, MP418A alongside people like Adrian Newey. How do you look back on those times? I mean, you worked with some incredible faces. I mean, as you know, that car never raced. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you, when you, we've actually got one of the chassis here at uh, Street Drone. We've turned it into a simulator. Um, so, nice. I mean, as an engineer, to work on something that was so out there, I mean, Adrian was trying everything. There was innovation everywhere. And it's hard to describe yeah, how far we were pushing the boundaries in every single way. And, and, um, that made it very fascinating. Um, obviously, it didn't race, so that's obviously the, the the bad side of it. But in terms of pure engineering, it was a incredibly interesting time, pushing every single thing over the top. You know, everything from the weight of the chassis to the blown floors and all of the you know all the tricks and um, bells and whistles Adrian wanted to try. So that was absolutely fascinating working with him and um, Mike Coughlin and, and others. It was a really interesting experience. But also where you've got, you know, you're uh, an engineer coming into a sports team, essentially. So it's, you know, they're, they're two kind of very different industries when you look at them from the outside. And, and typically you don't see industries like that mesh. Like, did you feel like you were part of a sports team or was it more like, you no? Know, for example, when you were at HSV, obviously that was a road car engineering job. Like how, how, how did going to a sports team kind of feel different, I suppose? I suppose in my career, I've been lucky to go backwards and forwards from the racetrack side of things. So uh, when I was in Australia doing Formula Fords, I was doing everything by the racetrack. Um, and then I was working in the design office at um, HSV. In Formula One at McLaren, I was back in the design office, let's say, designing the cars and not doing the testing or the, or the racing. And then when I went to Super Aguri, I was back more at the, the racetrack side of things. So I've been sort of backwards and forwards between design office and design to racetrack side of things. So I've, I've been lucky enough to be able to go backs and forwards between the two um, sides of it. In terms of um, what's, a, what's a racing team like compared to a car company, in some ways, a racing team is a small car company because you're, okay, you're only making two cars now. Uh, you used to make about five, I think, we used to have it at Arrows. So there's a lot of people making two cars. Uh, so it's it's like a small car company because you get to do, at least you touch everything, electronics, aerodynamics, engine to an extent, uh, not a lot, but um, to an extent. So it's like being in a small car company at, a, at an F1 team. Now, you uh, you would have worked with Ron Dennis. Um, Zach Brown is obviously the boss over at McLaren now. Very different place um, to how it was in Ron's day. Two contrasting management styles i would imagine um zach comes from a marketing background through jmi and then csm and now into into mclaren ron had his very unique way of working do, do you do you sit in any particular camp or can you see the benefits of both types of management style i coming from an engineering point of view i really enjoy the way that ron dennis goes about things his level of professionalism the, the level of professionalism of mclaren was incredible when you contrasted being at so the biggest things I learned going from Arrows to McLaren was things like um, every year for five years at Arrows we had a new engine 
which meant you had to learn about the new engine, get to know all the people at the new engine manufacturer, not only to redesign the gearboxes and everything for that new new um, engine. When but when I went to McLaren, we had the same Mercedes engine for uh, the last five years, and so you suddenly realise, wow, you don't waste as much energy on redesigning and relearning everything. Yeah. And you could see the the way McLaren um, would go about things. They'd sort of say, okay. If we're going to fix something, we're going to fix it properly. And we probably won't ever come back to that, that problem again until someone tells us it's wrong. Um, whereas at Arrows, we were redesigning and reinventing the wheel every year. So you could see the strengths of being in a, in a company like uh, McLaren. And after that, I did work you know, quite hard on, on taking the, the best ideas from both yeah. Arrows in certain ways. It was very entrepreneurial, Tom Walkinshaw's spirit, let's say, yeah. to the very professional um, approach of Ron Dennis. Um, and I, I always use one of the sayings of, uh, of Ron Dennis that when he came into motor racing, it was all a black art, and he made everything about science. So he could, he says, uh, to make um, winning a certainty, which I really uh, think is uh, probably still in the, the McLaren philosophy. So big fan of uh, Ron Dennis. Why were um, arrows? What was the purpose of the, the chopping and changing, changing engines all the time? Like, what, why was it like that? Why wasn't there that consistency? Um, I suppose when you're in a mid-grid team, you're also trying to find the future. You know, you're trying to find the best um, package for the future. We were with, uh, I think it was called Asia, Asia Tech uh, one year, uh, where that was a new, you know, engine manufacturer that was actually based on a Peugeot. Um, that didn't last uh, more than a year. Then we went back to a Cosworth. Um, with the Cosworth, we were just starting to make progress, actually, uh, on the A23 that was quite a that was quite a good engine. I think if we'd been able to build stability at that point, that would have been uh, great. Usually, because of technical deals, things didn't go right. We had a Yamaha engine in '96, but then Yamaha didn't continue. You know, so there's that sort of chopping okay. and changing from the from that side of things. And um, it's definitely one of the strengths of Mercedes, for example, who's been continuously in in motorsport for or F1 for what almost 20 years now, I think, mm. isn't it? Um, with high performance engines and that stability. And just chipping away at it, you know, is really, really powerful. Yeah, makes makes perfect sense. Isn't it wholesome to hear the word Cosworth? I miss those engines. Mm. Oh, the good old days. Yamaha, Cosworth. Oh, bring it all back. <laughs> um, on McLaren, do you think, you know, they, they've sort of been there or thereabouts for a little while now. They had a really dodgy period a few years ago. Um, Lando Norris obviously has faith in them. He's got a multi-year um relationship do you think it will be long before we see them right back up the front again i think um certainly the engine partnership is one of the you know the key elements and and i don't think anyone knows quite yet what's happening with the the new entrants from the from the audis and the porsches sure. and 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 the like and what's happening with honda i see only what i read of course on the on the various websites but um certainly Winning in motor racing is definitely quite correlated to um, an OEM partnership, I definitely believe, uh, which is obviously why people are always trying to, of course, have um, OEM partnerships. So to answer the question, they seem to be going, heading in the right direction, don't they? And Lando certainly um, is pushing them up there and keeping them at the, at the sharp end of the grid. It's great to watch some of, uh, some of these overtaking maneuvers and, and qualifying and, and things like that. So, yeah, they're going... They seem to be going in the right way, and, and I think if they can pull off a OEM partnership, um, that'll certainly um, strengthen them even more. Yeah, it's, it's being hinted, isn't it? Obviously, with Audi coming in now, potentially, I guess it gives McLaren more options. But also talking about the drivers, 
as an engineer and working at F1 teams, would you work particularly closely with drivers? And which, if, if so, which drivers would you say had the best kind of engineer relationship? Because I imagine they're all very different characters and personalities, right? I, I mean, working with um, Takuma was great when we started Super Aguri because he helped to, you know, be a driving force um, behind the, the team. I think you notice that the drivers, even though for me it's engineero and tires, so, you know, engine power, aerodynamics and, and tires are really important in any motor racing, the driver is still super important. And that can be everything from encouraging the team, pushing the team, helping the development direction. Uh, not leading it there, leading the team down a garden path and saying that's wonderful, even if it, you know maybe it's not. Um, that can certainly have a big impact. I certainly know from working with Jeff in Formula E that he helped us a lot uh, drive our drive um, the team forward, pushing everybody all the time, never never uh, being satisfied with um, with anything. That that's certainly I've seen that from um, working with him. So um, the drivers have a big impact, even though. Maybe the pure performance comes from, say, engine power and, and um, aerodynamics. The driver has a huge impact on making sure that one, people are motivated, and two, that we're going in the right direction. That's you know you certainly hear that about, say, um, Alonso and um, Hamilton and others that they keep. Not only um, are they great for motivating, they can also say this is the right direction. I believe we're going in the right direction, and keeping everybody helping to keep everybody pushing in the same direction is really super important. It, it feels like um, from an engineer's perspective, you know, you, you have been through a career of, like you say, pushing boundaries and uh, testing technologies and innovating constantly, particularly in Formula One. Uh, Formula One is in an interesting um, stage at the moment. We know we've got some new things coming in in 2026. Um, the, the whole world is heading towards a more sustainable um, uh, way of working across the board, not just in Formula One. We have Formula E who have their um, exclusive rights to single-seater electric racing for a 25-year period. What, what does F1 need to do to keep innovating and make sure that it stays current and, and doesn't become a sort of dinosaur in the world of electric and hybrid racing? I mean, definitely this, um, I think they're heading towards the 50% electrification. I think that's the, uh, the target. Um, I can see that there'll be probably lessons learned in Formula E from some of the manufacturers like Mercedes, who's obviously taking, going, putting more effort back into, into Formula One. Uh, I can see some of the technologies will be going backs and forwards. You know, when you look at it, Formula E started using technology from Kurs, so you know that that mm -hmm. did the the technology push in F1 helped to start um, Formula E. I think probably some technologies will go back into Formula One on the electrification side of things, but the Synthetic fuels and, and those things are really interesting. What they're what they're looking at um, for the 2026 rules, I think that's definitely the right way of going. Obviously, you have to figure out the energy used to create synthetic fuels is still up quite high, yeah. so that's a that's a problem. I don't know how they solve it, but that's an engineering problem, I suppose. Um, so the if they're able to find new techniques and methodologies of making synthetic fuel uh, in a way that's really more less energy intensive, um, that'll be fascinating. Um, do, do there may you, be other technologies that come from all of that. Do you think, um, yeah. do, do you think that, uh, and I'm not saying the cars are not a big deal when it comes to sustainability, but in, in that sustainability report that Formula One released, I think it said something like 1.7% of the 
annual CO2 emissions mm-hmm. were from the cars themselves. And, and the big emissions were actually from the logistics and freight and operations and transportation of personnel and VIPs and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Do, do you think we, we're focusing too much on, on the car and, and not focusing our attention in other areas? I believe you have to be relevant. So I think the technology that's... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The motorsport has to be relevant to the road cars and what's going on in the wider community, etc. So I think even though the, the amount of energy that's um, burned by the cars is the smallest number, let's say it's same in Formula E, you know, a lot of our yeah. CO2 comes from the, the freight as well. Which we try to to minimise a lot. Um, I think it's it's good that you push the technology uh, in the in the cars, and that um, comes across to the real world. I, I'll give you a silly example. I remember when remember when all cars had turbos, turbo badge on them. Mm-hmm. I think that was because F1 was using turbos. You know, so <laughs> you, you see that the that it became trendy. I suppose is the right word for um, people to drive um, turbos when F1 was running turbos. So I think. When F1 starts to use synthetic fuels, there'll be demand from customers to say, can I buy synthetic fuel for my car? Yeah. Okay, it's a bit more expensive, but maybe people will say, okay, but I'm willing to, to pay that uh, slightly higher price because it's um, it's more sustainable, fully sustainable. So even though it's a small percentage, I still think it's got to be relevant to the real, real world, let's say. Yeah, because I mean, I remember from that report, I think it's 45% is just logistics, which is just the the moving things. It's not even doing anything with those things. It's just moving them. So what do you think? And this isn't just an F1 problem. This is an issue for any global motorsport, including Formula A. So what do you think could be done more to try and mitigate? Because there has to be some kind of, you have to send stuff around the world for it to happen. There's certain things you won't be able to circumnavigate, but do you think there's more that Formula E, more that Formula One could be doing to get on top of these emissions? Um, I think certainly in Formula E, we've experimented with things that I know Formula One has then said, okay, that works quite well. We can, we can take that idea and, and put it back into, into F1. So, one of the things that um you know that you do in F1 is you take all of the freight from the base to the racetrack every every race. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Formula E we try to go race to race to race to race, and some of the um some of the legs of the journey, if they can be done by trucks or trains or things like that, then we try to do that. Mm-hmm. The amount of tires is always a problem because you know how many tires you use in F1 is just oh, it's, it's it's so many. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, think about going out the back into a garage back in 2006 and seeing how many tyre sets we had, you know, because we're in a tyre war at the time. Um, that's um, that's obviously not great. So I think there's ideas that can be 
um, built in. I think, first of all, you know, when we first went into Formula E and people said the cars aren't coming back to the track, uh, sorry, to the factory, we all went, oh, that's not possible. But then now it's just normal. It's normal, yeah. So um, you find ways around and uh, ways to solve problems. The same with the engines. You know, they, uh, when I was, uh, some of the guys I know from the Honda days, they said, you know, they used to have an engine that lasted 50 kilometers back down, back in the Senna days, you know. Um, and, and now they last. Uh, you know, yeah. how do they get four a season now? I think. Yeah, I think Brundle was talking about that recent, like this weekend, wasn't he? It was like something that you got back through about eighty engines <laughs> a season back in his day. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. It's yeah. nuts. <laughs> it is Formula One is so weird because it's it's so much about economics and commercial stuff, isn't it? You know, and they'll be like, well, you know, if that country, if regardless of their background, human rights issues, whatever, if they're going to pay us hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, we'll fly there. And if that means we have to come back to the factories, we'll come back to the factories. You know, it, there's still a lot of that that's going on that sounds like it needs so to A very quick interruption to remind you to check out our sponsors, Motus One, the event transportation company. Motus One is the industry leader in complex transport management from hospitality, talent, production crews, VIPs, and artist transport. Motus One's team have got you covered. They've also launched their leading edge cloud-based event transportation management system called Motus Ride. Now you can manage your entire event transport program digitally. Make bookings, allocate rides, create approval processes, see reports, track costs, loads more. Head over to motus1.com and hear how they can support your event transportation needs. Back to the show. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Super Guri because there was one stat I was listening to. Um, I think you were, it was another podcast you did or I read somewhere that um, you did it in, you set up the team in under 100 days, which is ridiculous. And, and it's funny because you hear about this, you know, high tech world of um, technology. And then you talk to some team principals. We had Gunter Steiner on and he was talking about how he started it with, you know, talking to Gene Haas in a Starbucks and writing on literally on the back of a, uh, a piece of paper how to start this F1 team. He was like, oh, it was easy. You know, we just did this. There's no problem. And you've done it in under 100 days. How on earth did you do it? Um, well, we we cheated a little bit because we took the we took the cars from Arrows, <laughs> so the ones that we finished um, at Arrows, we knew that Paul Stoddart had them um, down at his uh, base in Ledbury, and I'd been talking to him for the previous year or so about taking all of the IP and the assets of Arrows that he had all in just in a big warehouse, um, and we could uh, base it on that. And because I designed the um, the uh, last Arrows, and I knew its its strengths and weaknesses. We're able to say with Honda, okay, we need to redo the gearbox because that wasn't great. We this the chassis was fine, this was good, that wasn't. Um, we're able to say to the FIA because we, you know, I'd work with Joe Bauer and, and Charlie Whiting. We're able to say that look, this car did pass all these tests that are still relevant, and mm -hmm. we agreed, okay, we'll redo that test, we'll redo that crash test. That should be fine. You can use the same chips in the in the manufacturing because we've still got the records for those chassis that were manufactured, so that's okay. So we kind of went through the FIA, all the tick boxes. Um, and then uh, one of my old old bosses said, um, when you don't know what to do next, take small steps. So we just broke it down into there's 100 days and this is what we've got to get done every every um, every week. And, and later on I learned that one of the concepts is called time boxing where you say you've got one week to decide the aer aerodynamics of the cooling system. And on the Friday we have to have a decision. Doesn't matter if it's a good decision or a bad decision. We have to decide on Friday that it's going to be like this. So every week there was a, I don't care, we're going to have to decide. And so, for example, the car ended up with a solid aluminium roll hoop, which most people 
horrified about. Um, but it was because we had to make a decision on one Friday, and we said, okay, the carbon one's not working. We haven't got time. It's going to be solid aluminium. Get on with it. Um, so there was pragmatic decisions like that that just had to be made. And we, we made the decisions and we got on with it. Um, it was great fun. And I, I remember, uh, you know, when we were, we were starting the, um, doing the final, um, fire up of the cars, um, we were sitting there and we realized that the fuel pumps were rotating the wrong way, wrong way. <laughs> and we we're all like, Oh my God, we're not going to be able to start the car. And then someone said, I think those fuel pumps are similar to what Toyota's running. Let me just give the guys at Toyota a ring. And they rang that Toyota and Toyota said, yeah, we've got the pumps that run the other direction. We can send you over five tomorrow if you want. And so I think we actually, someone got on a plane, went to Toyota and Cologne, <laughs> oh my got God. the five um, uh, fuel pumps, came back, bolted them on the car and off we went. So um, there was all sorts of crazy stories where people in F1 actually, other teams helped us uh, get to the end. And so everyone was super supportive and when That's we nice. you know, orig- originally got to, uh, to Bahrain, most people came down and kind of peeked around the corner and said, oh, you are here. Yeah. Oh, we weren't sure if we were going to make it or not. So, uh, um, but yeah, it was, it was quite fun. A really crazy time. That's amazing. Yeah, I've heard like it's a good culture within F1. Um, you know, as much as everyone's competing, there's very much kind of, uh, you, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But then obviously moving into Formula E, obviously to Cheetah, CEO as well. Um, how do you feel that, the sport from a, again, I suppose, yeah, from a cultural point of view behind the scenes, does it feel particularly different to Formula One or would you say it's very much the same? I imagine there's a lot of similar kind of people and characters that you've met earlier in your career and now in Formula E too, right? Yeah, I mean, when we first started Formula E, most people in Formula One thought we were basically crazy. So many of the people we, we knew at um, uh, some of the Formula One teams, myself and Peter McCool, who who helped me start that, both that we'd met at, I'd met we'd met each other at McLaren, and um, yeah, most people thought we were stupid. Um, lots of people didn't want to have anything to do with us. Um, some car companies didn't want to be associated with or even talk to us about electric motorsport. Um, you know, when, when I I thought back, having grown up with petrol powered motorsport and that kind of thing, I'd never thought about electric vehicles till about 2008, nine, when I helped um, a company spin out of Oxford called Oxford Yasa Motors and started to get interested in, in EV. Um, yeah, it's, it's got lots of parallels. Um, at the very beginning it was very, um, everyone worked really closely with Alejandro, all the teams to get the rules. You know, sometimes we'd sit around in the circle of the FIA, and the teams in Alejandro and say, this is not going to work if we don't change this rule. And so everyone would say, all right, does everyone agree? Yes. Okay. If I, okay, let's just change the rule. And so at the very beginning, there was a lot of um, fast paced change when we, when we all, you know, sat down and realized that's not going to work. Everyone agree. Okay. Alejandro was all right, let's make that decision. So of course that slowed down a bit over time as things start to, you know, uh, become um, more, more coalescing and everything's coming into a, into um, working well. Uh, so it was quite fun at the beginning when it was so fast-paced, the change. Yeah. And you've had a, a lot of success um, in your time in Formula E and it's uh, the team and its various guys. Is, is there anything that particularly stands out to you that you look back on and think, yes, that that was really good? Yeah, I mean, obviously winning the championships is great. Um, and one of, the, one of the good and bad things about being in F1 is that um, it's sort of hard to be in the right team at the right time in, in F1, more difficult. Uh, and so going back to being in, um, you know, to winning again uh, is quite, quite cool. Same, you know, you hear when, you know, you hear Jeb talk or others that, um, you know, he was at Toro Rosso and didn't have really a chance mm. of, of winning. But in, in Formula E, we definitely had a chance of, of winning and being up there. And I think 
certainly the way that the FIA set up the rules for preliminary, you know, having a peak power and, and um, a number of control parameters means that the grid is a lot closer together. And that was, that's been one of its strengths at Formula E. Um, yeah, but it's, uh, it's been a cool ride and, and um, good fun winning, of course. Could, could it also be that that is also one of its downsides in that, you know, I think some people have argued that, you know, like in Formula One, you have the likes of Mercedes who have, who have bigger resources, you know, spend more money within a cost cap. Um, but because of that, they rise to the top. Is there that criticism still there that in Formula E, the, the teams that are really the best, because the margins are so small, are not necessarily getting the what they deserve? And, and does it maybe stifle innovation a bit as well? Um, you got to be careful. <clears throat> careful with a new series, I think, is the problem. You know, we've all discussed um, we could open up the batteries, but I don't think anyone could afford it. Or maybe one car company could afford it, maybe, and nobody else yeah. could. So you've you got to be careful to not kill a sport too quickly. So there's a fine balance between opening enough, uh, up enough technology. Um, to answer your question, I still think the fastest cars and the fastest drivers still came to the front, but the story was not quite so clear. I know that in a couple of the, the seasons, and that's why the qualifying system has changed for, um, it did change for season eight. Uh, so there's still a fair amount of randomness. There's still some crazy things that happen in the races, but um, I do think that the, the right, you know, the right drivers rose to the top no matter what. Um, but definitely it is um, the way the parameters are set out. It does keep the grid closer together, but still two seconds covers the grid. So it's, yeah. you know, there's still a reasonable gap between the front and the back. Yeah, I, I thought that qualifying change for season eight was really good. Because to be honest, I, I've not followed too much Formula E um, throughout its kind of history, but I think that really brought me in um, for sure. So I, I, I think experimenting with stuff like that is great. It makes the championship stand out. But obviously going into season nine, we've got brand new looking cars. Like, what can you tell tell us? Like, will you be there driver-wise? Like, what have we got to, to look forward to, I guess, next season? Yeah, it's really interesting with the new cars, isn't it? They're a lot mm. quicker, they're smaller, they're lighter. Um, obviously, being having the potential for four-wheel drive, uh, obviously having four-wheel regeneration, regenerating a huge amount of energy. I think we're targeting the 40-45% uh, range in terms of regeneration. There'll be pit stops um, for, for charging, ultra-fast charging. So technology-wise, there's um, some interesting steps. Yes, in the background, we're trying to finalise everything for, for next season. Um, I haven't got answers to all the questions yet, um, but uh, I've done a Formula One team in 100 days. There's plenty of time, ah. don't worry. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so no. it'll, be, it'll be really interesting with the new cars. Um, some of the drivers who already driven them said they're pretty exciting. Um, they're, they're pretty fast, obviously, with a with, um, huge amount of uh, power. Um, 350 kilowatts. There's a theoretical possibility of having the front powertrain working as well. Potentially in the future, the FIA might allow the you know the extra 150 on the front to 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 um, operate as well. So, yeah, getting to be quite fast cars now. Yeah, and uh, they look a bit funny. Let's be honest, they look a bit funny. But I, I bet you within within two or three races, everyone will have forgotten about that, and it'll just be back to oh yeah, that's the current car, and you know whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I know that certainly a lot of the, the fans that say young fans that don't know, um, haven't got a history in motorsports, would uh, like the car. Yeah. It all sort of depends on your viewpoint, I think. Um, it's a it's an interesting looking car, but there's a lot of people that like it. And it's, uh, um, so the good thing is it's fast. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
I think it's, that I think, it's, a, it's a Marmite chassis. I think it is. I, I, I really like it. I think it looks like what's in in Star Wars, the big uh, oh, yeah. destroyer. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, Darth it Vader's looks great. one. Yeah. I mean, it's brilliant. Yeah, it is a bit destroyerish because a, a lot of people were like, "It's it's a paper airplane." Um, I much prefer destroyer. So let's go with that. Um, but Formula E seems like it's in a in a positive place, and you know, hopefully, we'll see you back there next year. But it seems like it's continuing to grow. Brands like Maserati now getting involved, McLaren, obviously. It feels like it's in quite a buoyant place, despite one or two manufacturers leaving. Do you feel like it's headed in the right direction? I think um, we keep riding the waves that keep pushing towards electrification. You know, when we we first started, there was um, obviously China had just. Um, said that they were pushing towards EVs completely. And, you know, if you want to be a car company in the future, you've got to be in China. And so there's lots of waves that have come and, and pushed towards um, EV. There's obviously all of the, the rules coming up, 2030, 2035, cities, you know, banning um, combustion engines, those kind of things happening all around the world. So we keep, there's a momentum that keeps coming. And as we get closer to those 2030 dates, where car companies, you know, they're working five to seven year cycles, mm. They're starting to say, well, we're starting to get to a point where the next vehicles will just be uh, EVs. Yeah. And that's why people like Maserati are, are joining the, the series. Yeah, That's why I think it's really interesting because you've got the sport that's kind of following, you know, you, the, the the actual electric car. I mean, you're seeing it more and more. Every single day you walk out on the streets and you see more cars with those green um, number plates. Mm. There's more charging stations all the time, at least in the UK. And it's like the sport is kind of following this trajectory of the the actual car industry that is slowly but surely because you, even just a year ago there weren't anywhere near as many electric cars yeah. on the road as you see now. Like yeah. that must be quite exciting. But like, what's the what do you see in five ten years time realistically from from the sport? Where do you see these efficiencies growing and, and changing for Formula E and and just for you know the broader automotive market? I think um, I'm getting a Tesla, actually, in two weeks' time. Nice, one of the nice. drive ones. So that'll be interesting. Uh, I haven't, haven't driven one of those um, or have, have myself. Um, I think, you know, we could have things like front-wheel drive. All-wheel drive, I think, will be normal. And the balance between front and rear um, power, you know, maybe in the future we have, you could use 150 on the front, or maybe you want to have um, 300 on the front and 200 on the rear, uh, things like that. So getting up in terms of power, I think we'll probably maintain the kind of 45 minutes to an hour race uh, distance, but then just increasing the capability of the car from the four-wheel drive element, I think is the is the real, um, really interesting bit for the future. It's it's a fa- it's a fascinating subject, and um, I've bought I got a Audi e-tron fairly recently, um, but I've only had it I think six to eight months, and like you say, Tom, even that time ago it, things have changed i was driving back from norfolk the other day mm. stopped at a charging point which um had been built recently and it had something like 12 or 13 charging points next to each other full of electric cars i just whipped in there credit card bang charge came straight away there was no messing around like six or eight months ago when i was doing it in the public network before i got my home charger i was like fiddling around with apps, trying to tap my card. It wouldn't work. I'd go on to the next one. I'd freak out because I was running out of mileage. It was a pain. And all of a sudden, things seem to be changing. So it's, it's looking really positive. And, uh, and long may it continue. And I have to say, I would never, uh, can't believe I'm saying it, but I would never go back to a, a combustion engine now. I'm, um, wow. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a full convert. I love it. I mean, the power, the power is insane. I mean, my car's massive yeah. and it's freaking fast. Um, we'll, um, we are quickly coming to the end of the show, um, Mark. We have a final three questions 
which we ask all of our guests. They're brought to us by our um, podcast sponsors at Motus One. Um, I'll kick off with the first one. What's got you excited at this very moment, sporting or otherwise? Um, I think, yeah, just the new cars in, in Formula E. Um, I'm enjoying watching Formula One as well. Uh, that's, that's quite fun. Uh, so, yeah, racing is in a great spot. I think that's the, that's the most exciting bit at the moment. Next question. Obviously, your success that you've had in the industry. How much do you attribute that to luck, right place, right time? And how much do you attribute that to kind of the work that you've put in, I suppose? Because well, to anyone watching who's got aspirations to be in a similar place to you, you know, I think there's a balance, right? It's interesting that yesterday I was just actually doing the speech for the graduation class at Oxford Brooks for motorsports and engineering. And part of my speech was basically saying that luck is when opportunity meets preparation. And so I think you've got to put yourself out there, but you've also got to be prepared for when opportunities arise and that's when luck happens. Yeah, absolutely. Um, final question for you. What are you scared of? Scared of? Hmm. Heights? Um, <laughs> Same. Maybe that's the kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I'm not scared of too many things, but uh, scared of heights maybe. Yeah. No. I, I, I want to ask one more question on. before we wrap up. Um, solid state batteries, are they the future? I think they have to be from a technical point of view. I'm not sure how far away they are realistically at the moment. There's certainly a lot of people developing, but developing them. But um, yeah, they're certainly certainly coming. I think more of what's happening at the moment, though, is things like as the prices of different metals change, you know, cobalt versus um, uh, all the various different um, elements. I think when you look at some of the batteries like LFPs and other things where they're looking at using batteries that have potentially cheaper or more available materials is certainly something of interest as well. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Look at us getting into the weeds. It's like, it's like <laughs> we're clever or something. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> we've, we've not had time to touch on street drone, street drone Mark. In, in a sentence, just tell our audience what it is and where they can find out more. Yeah, Street Drone is an autonomous vehicle company based in Oxford, and we are doing projects like trucks at Nissan and last mile delivery vehicles um, in uh, the coming up and tw- on the roads probably 2025, I think. Amazing. Um, we'll have to come and visit you down there. It sounds like a, a fascinating world to be a part of, but um, we've kept you for long enough. Thank you so much for your time. Fascinating to hear your story um, and and dive into the, the, the complex and fascinating world of electric vehicles. Um, Mark, I'm sure we'll talk again, but for now, thank you so much for joining us on the Motormouth Podcast. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening to the podcast. Before you leave us, one final reminder to check out the guys and girls of Motus One, your new transportation solution for minor, mega, and signature events anywhere in the world. Motus One simplifies the complex process of event transportation and provides clients with unrivaled service and support to ensure your event transportation needs are fulfilled. Check them out today at motusone.com. And if you tell them you found them through the Motormouth podcast, you'll get up to 20% off your first booking. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official, and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans, and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too, so make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumours quicker. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast.